Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Equity training is now considered discriminatory in Utah's K-12 schools after a vote by the Utah State Board of Education. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is slapped with a string of new copycat tithing lawsuits. And Utah taxpayers could end up buying a coal plant as legislators advance an Intermountain Power Project plan. Joining today are Salt Lake Tribune education reporter Carmen Nesbitt. Carmen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thank you. Real estate reporter Tony Semerad is with us. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Thanks. And renewable energy reporter Tim Fitzpatrick also joins us. Thank you. Good to be here, Tom. Good uh, good to have you. appreciate it. And news columnist Robert Gerke. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's start with education reporter uh, Carmen Nesbitt. Uh, this is, uh, I believe, Carmen, fallout from what the legislature is doing on DEI, right? Um, here's the the first uh, here's the first line of the story: A Utah rule initially designed to ensure educational equity for all students now explicitly prohibits some equitable practices in K through 12 public schools. Uh, that was action by the state school board last week. Uh, so, Carmen, uh, tell us about the previous rule before it was amended. Sure. Uh, you know, this was kind of a journey that was, uh, you know, expected and unexpected in a lot of ways. Uh, the previous rule was just kind of saying that all students are capable of learning and that's, that schools are responsible for providing resources, whether that be funding or programs to ensure that all students receive an equal education. And part of the old language um, of the the previous rule included some concepts that were banned from from being taught in Utah classrooms, and that basically includes, you know, uh, saying that one race is superior to another race, saying that you know children should be or feel guilty for actions taken by ancestors or actions taken by people within their same you know group. Uh, but it it basically recognized that a student's background and unique circumstances impacts the way that they can receive an equal education. So that, lang- um, that language, uh, sorry, that language you just mentioned sounds to me like uh, they're they're trying to uh, prohibit critical race theory in any way, shape, correct. or form, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, it's the equity rule. Uh, came under fire when it was, you know, first passed. There was a lot of debate, a lot of pushback um, by certain board members and certain, you know, individuals saying that it was kind of a a backdoor to critical race theory. And critical race theory is it's it's a a, a kind of a, a, a graduate level concept, right? That kind of looks at and examines how race um, uh, plays out or in society or systemic racism racism plays out in society. Uh, There was a study done and critical race theory is not, you know, taught in Utah K-12 schools. Uh, That's an, it's an academic, you know, theory. It's not (laughs) the practice of, hey, my, you know, this student comes from a, a economically disabled background or disadvantaged background, and they didn't have breakfast this morning. And so 
a school can provide them breakfast so that they have a clear mind to learn. That's not what this is. Um, so before we get to the new newly amended rule, that original rule, uh, several members of the board reading your story wanted to repeal that rule. And um, there was a big response to that. Yeah, uh, that came about before, you know, the, the anti-DEI bill was was passed. And that started in November. And that, the reasons that why they wanted to repeal this rule initially is because it conflicted with what they said was uh, another law that was passed in, in 2023, which um, I believe was... Um, uh, individual freedoms uh, in public school. Sorry if I misquote the, the name of that law, but uh, which had similar bans on concepts that, yes, are related to critical race theory. Uh, but what ended up happening over the course of, I think, three different board meetings, um, the repeal failed. And in part because board members said that they'd never seen such a strong public, you know, backlash or opposition to repealing a rule before. Uh, so many hundreds, they cited hundreds of emails and phone calls, you know, asking them to keep it intact because it provided certain pr protections, right, for students with disabilities and, and other historically underserved student groups. Uh, so it survived a repeal attempt. And they all, in, that was in January, and they voted to amend it, right? And then the anti-DEI law passed, and the amendments look nothing like the, the rule that was before and look nothing like what, why the public wanted to keep the rule intact in the first place. Uh, so, yeah, tell us about this newly amended uh, rule. This just happened this past week, right, or, or last week? Yeah, so in... You know, in short, it basically kind of takes any any words related to equity and diversity. It removes them and, in fact, explicitly prohibits any practices or programs with the name or related to diversity, equity and inclusion. And that is language taken directly from the, the new anti-DEI bill. Uh, so what's left in the, uh, in, in the rule then? Uh, it does keep, uh, specific protections for students with disabilities. Um, and I mean, that's kind of it. Mm. <laughs> uh, Otherwise, it, it has changed the name to uh, Equal uh, Opportunities in Education and kind of expands on those concept prohibitions, which, again, that language is taken directly from the anti-DEI bill. Um, so you note in the, the story, Senator Bramble has introduced a bill which it looks like, uh, you'll tell me if I have this correct, um, would eliminate all rules except for this one that we're talking about? Right. And that bill proposal came before the Utah State Board of Education met to amend the rule, which now looks entirely different. So it's a little unclear if the, you know, Senator Bramble's bill will be revised. 
to yeah not repeal that rule okay yeah uh so we don't we don't know what senator bramble is going to do for sure with that bill yeah it's still up in the air okay um, let's see, I want to quote uh, something. I'll just read from your story, Carmen. Uh, you're quoting uh, board member Natalie Klein. Uh, the rule has been used all over the state. Uh, I guess she's talking about the original rule. It's been used all over the state as a permission slip, basically, to institute discriminatory practices and programs. It's actually used to tip the scales in favor of certain groups and puts equity over merit and personal responsibility. Uh, to which I guess some groups would repost, yes, that's the, <laughs> because of historic uh, systemic racism, et cetera, that, that, you know, you've got it right. Um, what, uh, what, are, what are folks saying about this? Well, I, I think folks are saying that's a misinterpretation of what equity is and what it's designed to do in a school setting. Um, I kind of, People have referred to, I've heard this example before, of uh, equity is is not about equal outcomes, right? It's if if you're in a crowd or, you know, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll use this example. If you're in a crowd and, and a child can't see, right, there's a, there's a concert going on or a, a game going on. If a child can't see, you lift up the child, you know, put them on your shoulder so they can see what's happening, right? That's, that's equity. It isn't saying that because somebody is of a certain background or a certain race that they'll get extra points added to their math quiz because because of that although natalie klein did say that teachers are being trained to do just that which i mean i that is not true um but that's not that's not what it is uh it's just a a, a misinterpretation of of equity and kind of using critical race theory and, and concepts, you know, as, as the boogeyman um, to push, in my opinion, a political agenda. Agenda. Um, this rule, uh, understand now, requires equal opportunity in education training. What, uh, what will that look like? Um, so that is, if I get, I'm looking at the bill here, sorry. Um, So um, it's just teaching basically teachers how to uh, address like specifically academic needs, right? So it takes out all that language that said, hey, a student's background is really important to getting an equal education. It just says their academic needs. Um, it also means fostering a safe environment um, without distractions. And according to the new rule language, they're constitutionally protected rights um, and developing strategies for, quote, politically neutral examination of various viewpoints and topics. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about this, uh, Carmen? Um, not not really. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've covered it. Yeah, this is, uh, and we'll we'll continue to see uh, the fallout, uh, follow up, I guess from uh, from the new anti DEI bill, which is which has passed the legislature. Um, Carmen Nesbitt, education reporter. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom.
uh, or refer uh, people to Courtney Tanner's um, article on uh, how this is playing out at University of Utah. A lot of faculty upset there. And this is this is certainly playing out not only K through 12, but in higher education. Um, Robert Gerke, uh, let me have you uh, comment on this, and then I want to uh, turn briefly to another story somewhat related. I mentioned Natalie Klein, one of the board members, State School Board of Education. She's uh, uh, done some uh, controversial things recently. But first of all, your comment on on this particular uh, story. Yeah, I mean, this is, we talked about this for a few weeks, but it's this nationwide push against, you know, woke agenda, you know, that doesn't really... When you drill down on it, doesn't really have much definition to it. Uh, they've been trying to get rid of this equity uh, policy for quite some time, as, as Carmen mentioned. The senators, uh, the legislature, had made clear that they were going to repeal this on their own if the school board didn't. So, I think fundamentally, though, we need to, you know, take a step back and say, okay, we're in an increasingly diverse, uh, diverse state, right? We got increasingly diverse student bodies at my kids' school when they went. They had 29 languages spoken there. Uh, kids, refugee kids, kids from all over the world. There needs to be some recognition of that, of the challenges it presents, and programs to help lift them up. And if we don't do that, we're failing these kids. Uh, we've already seen graduation rates that, you know, that minority populations still aren't keeping up. They're doing better, but they aren't keeping up. If you pull out that, if you pull out that uh, tailored uh, policy toward, you know, to help them do better, you're going to do worse. And so, it's it's unfortunate that the legislature doesn't see that and don't care, frankly. Uh, so, Robert, uh, I just want to read this uh, headline. There's several stories on this. Courtney Tanner's been reporting on this. Emily Anderson Stern. Uh, here's the headline from a couple of days ago. Um, uh, looks like updated today. Utah State, uh, Utah School Board member Natalie Klein questions high school athletes' gender, causing social media uproar. Um, tell us briefly what happened. So Natalie posted a, uh, a, a advertisement, I guess, for uh, a basketball team uh, here in the, in the valley, uh, and pointed out that one of the girls had short hair. She was strong. Uh, she she post the post was quote girls basketball unquote. Uh, she her her followers obviously jumped on it. They knew exactly what dog whistle was there. Started attacking this girl for being transgender, even though she was not. Um, the there there had to be extra security uh, for this girl. Uh, Natalie later deleted it. I mean, the, the backlash was swift and universal. I mean, Spencer Cox, Peter Henderson, uh, the Republican leadership in the legislature, Democratic leadership in the legislature, Equality Utah, lots of people calling on her to resign. Even Kira Berkland, who sponsored the uh, transgender ban on sports uh, in Utah, uh, said it was inappropriate for her to publicly single out this child. She's under 18. Uh, she's 16, actually. And, you know, and, and heap this scorn and scrutiny on her for something that she, you know, it's, it's inappropriate to single out, period. But in this case, she's also happens to be wrong. So um, so Natalie deleted it. She said, you know, her intent was never to she shared the advertisement. Her intent was never to, to single anybody out, which I think you can 
draw your own judgments on the accuracy of that statement. Um, and that and that in this, because we've normalized transgenderism, it's an, a normal question to ask. And fundamentally, it's not. Uh, you know, the, this this trend that we've seen fueled by Kara Birkeland and the legislature and, you know, Spencer Cox has gone along with it, has empowered these people. We talked last week about the, or the week before, about the, the girl whose a dad came out of the stands before a game and challenged her to prove or challenged her coaches to, to prove that she's female because he didn't think she was. She had short hair, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's empowered these people to be on their worst behavior, to target children. And um, this is, you know, Equality Utah said this is just a sampling of what we're going to get in this state. The Granite School District is meeting today to issue a statement condemning uh, Natalie Klein's uh, uh, post. The uh, state school board is talking about its options. They apparently don't have the option to impeach her, um, although there's some talk in the legislature of passing a bill to allow them to do that. Um, and but there are actions they can take. They take an action against her before for an anti-LGBTQ post back in 2021, I believe. Um, but they're going to be meeting as well to and and, and they're disturbed by it. I mean, uh, crossing party lines, the Republicans are disturbed by it too. So um, yeah, it's 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 uh, I guess a, a signal of the new world that we've created here in the state. Let's head toward a break. Uh, the next headline we'll be uh, treating after the break is The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is slapped with a string of new copycat tithing lawsuits. We'll be talking with real estate reporter Tony Semerad. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. We'll have more following this. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Salt Lake Tribune reporters and also news columnist Robert Gerke. We turn next to real estate reporter Tony Semerad. Uh, here is the headline, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is slapped with a string of new copycat tithing lawsuits. And uh, Tony Semerad, this is something you've been uh, covering. Thanks for, uh, for covering this uh, with us. Uh, so, Tony, uh, 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 tell us uh, about the, I guess, the original um, lawsuit here. This is James Huntsman. What uh, what was his um, allegation? Let's see. We got uh, Tony. You're uh, muted here. Sorry about that. There, there you go. Um, yeah. So um, these class actions relate kind of um, in interesting ways to the original lawsuit filed in 2021 by prominent Utah uh, James Huntsman. He um, has a, a multi-million dollar uh, fraud lawsuit filed in federal court um, uh, seeking the return of his uh, own tithing over a, a number of years when he was an active member. Um, that has had an interesting trajectory in, in federal court. It initially got thrown out um, and was uh, reinstated um, last summer by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and um, it, it sets there, subject to appeal um, by the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
um, their attorneys have sought a review of that case by the full Ninth Circuit. The reinstatement was by a, a three-judge panel. But meanwhile, um, there have been a flurry of lawsuits filed in a number of jurisdictions in Utah, Illinois, Tennessee, Washington, and now California from um, individual uh, uh, plaintiffs, if you will, former Latter-day Saints that um, also are uh, claiming that they were misled um, into uh, tithing, that um, they had received um, assurances over the years that the church was not spending these uh, sacred donations by members uh, on uh, private commercial ventures, that these were all uh, being used for charitable purposes, and and the claim is that they uh, they have been uh, disillusioned uh, these plaintiffs by the fact that the church um, it has been revealed that the church spent substantially on um, City Creek Center, the luxury mall in downtown Salt Lake City, and a and on an in insurance company, and and so uh, the, the the at least the most recent four of these lawsuits that have been filed are are uh, virtually identical in their language. Uh, and again, they're they're claiming a sort of a secular legal argument, one that doesn't get entangled in religious kind of thought, but a sort of secular fraud argument that um, they've been misled by church leaders and they want their money back. Um, so that there there is a dispute over whether or not uh, tithing was used. What, what is the what is the church? What do church officials uh, say? Well, the, the, the church's argument throughout, and this includes James Huntsman's case, and then in um, arguments they're making at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, is that uh, these five statements uh, that are included in these lawsuits by church leaders, including a, uh, a statement by then uh, Church President Gordon B. Hinckley um, at, at General Conference, has has been consistent. They have said that they um, uh, do not use did not use tithing for um, uh, these purposes. Instead, they're saying that they have responsibly sort of invested um, surplus tithing, and that these funds used on the mall and on the insurance company came from earnings from um, that tithing rather than the tithing itself. Um, and they're they're saying they've been they've been clear on that throughout uh, that that tithing itself was never used that it was earnings from these investments that that were in instead used and they're and they are they have um, stood consistently by that claim as it's worked its way through um, various venues in federal court. Uh, so the original uh, judge threw this out. Uh, then the then the appeals court said, "Let's uh, send it back. Let's reconsider this." Um, and so I suppose this this question could be a key question if it does go to to, to trial. Um, so uh, this uh, I think closely related here is a. Whistleblower who came forward, right? And then a 60 Minutes um, episode. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the at least four um, of these lawsuits, well, all of these lawsuits in one way or another, and and there are, there are now five class actions in addition to James Huntsman's case, which is not technically a class action suit. And they all draw on, you know, um, 
information revealed since um, 2019, there was a whistleblower that had worked for Ensign Peak Advisors, the church's investment arm, uh, David Nielsen, that came forward in the kind of 2019 window to reveal that, you know, this massive investment fund had not spent on charitable activities for, you know, the sort of two decades that it's been in existence. Um, and, and his revelations also revealed this spending on on City Creek and, and beneficial life. All of the class action lawsuits refer in one way or another to Nielsen's affidavits and then his subsequent appearance on um, 60 Minutes, um, you know, um, making a lot of the same kind of allegations. In the meantime, of course, the uh, uh, Federal Security uh, uh, um, Exchange Commission um, which regulates uh, investments in stock trading um, of a of a specific size above a specific size, has uh, um, fined um, Ensign Peak and the church for um, misleading regulators. Uh, there were allegations that I'm sure many of your listeners will recall that the that the church had set up a. Uh, up to a dozen shell companies um, to basically shield um, information on its investments and on the size of its investments um, from federal regulators. And it was, um, you know, the the the, the church, uh, it, it, there was a settlement issued um, and the church, the church consented um, that it uh, had, had indeed violated and Ensign Peak had violated these reporting requirements. And there was a a, a pretty substantial fine, four million against Ensign Peak and a million against the, uh, a church. And these lawsuits also, uh, of course, bring up the the SEC settlement. And uh, you know, basically, to make the case that the church has some somehow been dishonest um, about all of this and and has misled its members in the same way that it misled federal regulators. Um, is there anything this lawsuit about uh, the, one of the complaints from uh, some of these whistleblowers and, and others in um, in the 60 Minutes piece, right? And in the, uh, the original complaints was that the why is the church building up so much money? Why aren't they spending it on charitable uh, things? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the, the there is an element in at least three of the class action lawsuits where um, the uh, plaintiffs are, are are claiming that their re original religious intentions in giving tithing were not fulfilled by the way that the church, um, you know, ended up spending the money. But um, it, 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 that, that specific cross current that, that you're mentioning, you know, the, this sort of accumulation of wealth and the $100 billion figure that um, was initially associated with Ensign Peak, it, 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 it's not a huge element in these uh, class action case. It's sort of part of the debate that, that is surrounding them. But um, there's, a, there's a really important point here. The, the church's appeal at the Ninth Circuit, um, you know, seeking full review by this, uh, the, by the Ninth Circuit, it, it is very firmly rooted in the idea of religious freedom and church autonomy. This has been a consistent argument that the church has made through the Huntsman case and in a lot of its filings related to these class action lawsuits, 
that this legal examination crosses a very vital line that is guaranteed, according to the church, by the U.S. Constitution's protection of religion, that th th this is delving too deeply, as far as the church is concerned, into religious thought, um, religious freedom, and the church's own autonomy. And that is the main argument that they are uh, taking up to the to the to the full Ninth Circuit. And I suspect whatever happens there, if if Huntsman's case continues, that will continue to be the church's line. Um, and and you know uh, that 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 uh, that full legal argument has yet to be tested at the appellate level. It'll be very interesting to see what weight um, that carries. You recall Bishop Christopher Waddell it was uh, it was part of that sixty minutes. He was interviewed on that. He uh, he very strongly defended the church's right to use these funds however they see fit. And uh, he says this is in part a rainy day fund, and uh, you know we we have the right to do that. Um, so. Um, the the church is asking for uh, a full review from the full Ninth Circuit. Is it right? Right. And this and this latest um, filing um, by uh, their their attorney Paul Clement, who is very prominent in the religious freedom space, basically sounds the alarm. It says, "Hey, you know, we're we're getting deluged by these uh, copycat class action lawsuits." that's created an emergency and um, um, as they beg the Ninth Circuit to um, review this Huntsman case um, th there, I, I think the, the strategy there is they want a full review of this uh, religious freedom and church autonomy argument. And were they to prevail on that, it would essentially make a lot of these lawsuits go away. Now, I understand uh, these litigants want to combine these suits into one class action. Is that true? Yeah, there's a, you know, an interesting layer of federal court that looks at similar legal issues that arise in different venues. And a couple of these plaintiffs um, have filed with this multi-jurisdictional layer of the courts to say, hey, um, these are looking very similar in all these different places. M maybe it's time uh, federal judges to combine this all into one um, class action lawsuit. And uh, there are there are filings suggesting where that should be. Should that be in Utah? Should that be in California? But it's important to note that is a very substantial barrier uh, that, that the plaintiffs are going to have to um, overcome if they want these lawsuits to continue. And that is certification of a class um, in this case. Um, that is saying, yeah, all of you plaintiffs um, out there share certain commonalities that are going to be adequate to define you as a class and let these class action lawsuits move forward. That, that, that's that's a high legal benchmark, it seems to me, in this in this case. And it'll be very interesting to see, um, you know, where those those kinds of filings go. Now, the Huntsman case is not a part of that. They, they, they don't they're they're not suggesting that become part of the class action. Yeah, no, one of these uh, class actions has been filed in the same court in California as James Huntsman's lawsuit. And so there's some talk about maybe consolidating all of these cases into that separate lawsuit. But um, my indications from um, James Huntsman's team um, is that they're, you know, they really view this, his legal cause as separate from these other class actions. Um, you know, in some ways, taken a slightly different or even substantially different legal strategies. And 
Um, I, I, I don't get the sense that that James Huntsman is interested in having all of these consolidated with his case. Um, he's also um, signaled a number of times that he is open to a settlement on his on his case um, as it proceeds. And so it, it um, I, I, I think those those legal destinies may diverge. Um, and it, it, it seems to me unlikely at this point that these class actions would be combined into his case. Tony Simrad, thanks so much for telling us about this. Hey, you bet. Thank you. Um, Robert Gerke, what do you think about this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense, I guess, when you think about it, that there's going to be other people who share uh, Mr. Huntsman's sentiment about the ways tithing money was used, and they feel like they were been defrauded. And so if it's successful, there's an opportunity for these people to recoup some of that money. Uh, it's, I think it's still a difficult case to prove, but, I, you know, as Tony mentioned, there's there are some barriers to it, um, but you know the, the church is definitely being called to account for the way it's used the money and whether it could have used the money for good work, you know, charitable work versus real estate development. I think is is a fair question for them to have to answer. So you know, it, at a minimum, uh, the lawsuit will you know put them on the spot to answer that. And if he's successful, then these others have the chances to succeed too, and it could be. Uh, some real accountability for the church. So it's going to be an interesting one to watch. We'll head toward another break, and uh, we'll be talking about this headline. Uh, Following the break, Utah taxpayers could end up buying a coal plant as legislators advance an Intermountain Power Project plan. Uh, We'll be talking with renewable energy reporter Tim Fitzpatrick. You are listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. More follows this. Thanks for listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn next to Salt Lake Tribune renewable energy reporter Tim Fitzpatrick. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Uh, So here's the headline. Utah taxpayers could end up buying a coal plant as legislators advance an Intermountain Power Project uh, plan. Um, First of all, uh, remind us... This IPP plant is out near Delta, right? Right. This is a a 40-year-old coal plant uh, that was built back in the 80s. It was operated by 23 Utah cities who could draw power from it. But it's really the bulk of the power goes through Southern California to Los Angeles. Um, And what's happened in the 40 years, basically, or recently, is that uh, California wants to move away from coal power. They have a deadline to do that by next year. So uh, the people who run IPP have decided to, to build a new plant, one that is pretty new age. It, brings, it burns both uh, natural gas and hydrogen. Uh, the plan is to eventually have a plant that runs all on green hydrogen and is uh, completely uh, carbon neutral um, and, or carbon free, I guess you'd say. Um, the, uh, uh, the concern from the Utah legislature is that, and, and it's kind of a general concern that we're closing coal plants too fast. We will, we are leaving the grid vulnerable. Um, and, uh, and there's an argument to be made on that. Uh, although in this particular case, there's nobody who wants the power. There's nobody who wants to continue that coal power. 
it's it's a plant that uh, would require uh, even a billion dollars, perhaps, of new upgrades to keep it running. Uh, the IPP folks made a deal with the EPA regarding coal ash to shut it down. The state has an air quality plan that depends on shutting it down. And trying to unravel all that is 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 looking pretty steep. But ultimately, the biggest problem is, is that they just don't have a customer. They're, uh, this is not being killed by environmentalists. It's being killed by the market. That uh, basically the nation is moving away from coal power. Uh, so Senator Darren Owens, who's Republican from Fountain Green, he's sponsoring Senate Bill 161. What would 161 do? It sets up a, a unique process, basically, where the state's Public Service Commission would set a price for the plant, which is something they've never done, and they say they have to get a, spend a quarter million dollars on outside expertise to do it. And then once the price is set, it would be offered to anyone who wants to, who agrees to pay that price and run it as a coal plant. Um, and uh, if no one meets that price, then it would be offered to the state of Utah at that price. But the whole idea of Utah buying a coal plant that the market has already refused or declined seems unlikely. Um, but these guys, uh, they just don't want to give up. Uh, and so they're still trying to see if they can come up with a plan. Several mayors have... Um have weighed in. Uh, Bountiful Mayor, uh, Logan Mayor, I notice, uh, weighed in. Why are mayors weighing in on this? Well, again, this this plant has been operated for 40 years by 23 Utah cities that can draw power from it. Uh, That's how it was set up in the 80s. Most of the state gets its power from Rocky Mountain Power, but there are uh, a couple dozen cities that have their own power departments, and they all got together uh, to uh, to build this plant. They also are very eager to participate in the new clean energy plant. And and their concern basically is they don't want the, the, the new plan to be unraveled by trying to save the old plan. Um, and essentially what the legislature wants to do is, is take over IPP from this these uh, mayors and or these cities. And that's what they're objecting to. Uh, by the way, what would the the gap be? When when do they want to shut down the coal plant, and when would this uh, new plant be online? Uh, well, there is no gap. Oh, the no is, gap. Okay, is the, is the coal plant shuts down next year? I'm not sure exactly when. I'm not sure they set a date, but when it shuts down, the gas plant will start up. So they're building the gas plant right now next to the coal plant. Uh, there's already legislation that says they can't tear down the coal plant. Uh, right away. Um, and so, you know, the, the IPP folks say they will put it in a state they call cold, dark, and safe, uh, where it will just sit there. Um, but time is not on the coal plant side. You know, it, it, if they can't get a deal right away, it's unlikely they'll get a, a deal later on for somebody to buy a coal plant that's been sitting cold, dark, and safe for a while. Uh, tell me more about the the Republican uh, Republican leadership. Certainly, Senator Adams and uh, uh, what Speaker Schultz and, and others uh, have have put energy high on their list, and and several of them are are concerned about coal. I guess it, transitioning away from coal too soon, or or at all. What what are the concerns? Uh, it, basically, the motivation is is that. Um, there is uh, a, an increased vulnerability uh, on the Western grid. 
Um, and some of that is retiring coal plants. Some of that is wildfire. Some of that is a lot of things. Um, and, uh, and so it's a, it is uh, a legitimate question as to uh, when coal plants should close. Um, but it's also a, a market-driven environment that uh, is across the state lines and state legislators don't have a lot of control. Uh, and you know they are all—they're always really big on their sovereignty, and uh, and they hate to be told they don't have control. So, and they're also all running for office, so they need to be able to. They think they got an issue that they can take to voters and say, uh, "We made sure there's energy security." Whether or not that's true is really debatable. Um, uh, there's one Republican on the committee who voted against this measure, Senator Vickers. What what are what are his concerns? You know, um, it, Senator Vickers uh, um, is uh, his district covers a lot of this new energy territory down there. Uh, it, you know, there's a lot of geothermal options, or you know, geothermal development is coming on in uh, Beaver County. There's solar, there's wind down there, um, and uh, and and he basically hears from his constituents that. Uh, we want clean energy, um, and and that's a growing message, I guess. Um, and and in his district, clean energy is producing jobs and it's producing uh, revenue. Um, so uh, he's maybe in a little bit different state th uh, than uh, others. Uh, you know, Senator Owens sits in the middle of uh, coal mines, and uh, so that's more his interest. I want to uh, read this quote. You quote Logan Mayor Holly Danes, one of these mayors of 23 cities, you know, that uh, participating in IPA. Uh, she says, uh, we've talked so much about the Utah way, but this bill really is a bit troubling that it can contemplates a forced sale of our assets and potentially doesn't provide due process. Timeline's very short. So uh, I guess it would come down to that, right? If it came if sold to the state, it'd be a forced sale of uh, assets that these cities have uh, invested in. Well, I mean, even if they sell it to someone else, it's still a forced sale. Um, and, and that's, I mean, I, it goes back to the fact that, um, that legislators want to take this away from the 23 cities who built it. Um, you know, cities are a creation of the state. Um, and so, you know, whether that's successful, legislators may be able to make the case. It also could end up being litigated. And that would be unfortunate because then it's just basically makes money for lawyers. Uh, you have a section here on air quality. That's, of course, um, very intimately uh, concerned here. Uh, tell us about how this would affect, I guess, either way, uh, uh, air quality plans. Yeah, well, and basically what happened is when IPP decided to close the coal plant, uh, that made uh, Utah's air quality uh, challenges better. I mean, it, it, it improved the situation. So they have, the state has a, a ozone plan as it has to have because it produces too much. I mean, it ha we have too much ozone here. And in that plan, they were able to say, well, we're going to close this coal plant next year and it'll reduce ozone quite a bit. Uh, so... If they and that plan is now basically being re reviewed by the feds. Uh, if they have to unravel that plan, they have to come up with something else somewhere else to be able to reduce ozone, uh, so they can still try to meet the federal standards. Um, that is basically what the state air quality chief, uh, 
Bryce Byrd tried to point out to legislators who decided to approve the bill anyway. Hmm. Um, anything else you'd like to tell us about this? Well, I think just basically that, uh, again, the biggest challenge here is is not uh, the law, it's not environmentalists, it's the market. The market is ready to move away from coal. And and uh, data centers, you know, they, they have a transmission problem. They can't get the power out of there. So they talked about um, uh, trying to locate data centers there. But data centers are run by companies that don't want coal power. So they still they still have a challenge. It's just it just seems like it's it's unlikely that that plant will ever keep running after 2025. Renewable Energy reported Tim Fitzpatrick. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Robert Gerke, what do you think about this story? Yeah, I think Tim did a really nice job summarizing it. I mean, it's it's kind of a maddening power power play by the legislature. Um, and you know, if somebody if the legislature came in and said we're going to take your home. Uh, they can't do that. Taking It's a taking, uh, and it's unconstitutional, and it's going to get them a lawsuit if they try it. But even if they do, there's all these costs that come with it. For example, they have to retrofit and upgrade the coal ash ponds where they dump the coal ash from the, from the coal plant. Uh, that could cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Most of the power from this plant flows to Los Angeles and, and in Southern California. Uh, so if they were trying to use that in state to provide the stability that they claim is one of the assets, uh, they would have to get it connected to the grid, which is tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and that's on top of the millions of dollars it would cost to actually purchase the, the plant. And so, you know, it's it, it feels like they're, I don't know, not tilting at windmills, but I guess tilting at coal plants in this one. And it, it's short-sighted, and it could end up costing us taxpayers a lot of money and doing significant harm to our air. Let's turn to our underplayed stories of the week. And uh, let's start with Carmen Nesbitt. What's your underplayed story of the week? Uh, I want to give a, a shout-out uh, and a little love to a story written by my colleague and fellow education reporter, uh, Michael Lee. Uh, it, it explores why it's important in schools and school districts with a high number of, of diverse students to also have um, teachers that reflect that diversity. It's called the majority of Salt Lake City students aren't white. Why are most of its teachers? All right, check that out at sltrib.com. Thanks. Um, Tony Semerad, what's uh, your underplayed story of the week? Well, so this is a quirky one amid all of this um, other controversies on um, Capitol Hill. There is also a proposed constitutional amendment to uh, legalize gambling. Um, a, a, a House joint resolution sponsored by Kara Berkland, uh, R. R. Morgan, who we mentioned previously has gotten caught up in some of the uh, controversy over the transgender bill. This would uh, allow the legislature to create a state run lottery um, to alleviate uh, people's property tax bills um, with the revenue. It doesn't seem to have much of a chance, according to leadership, to advance. But, um, you know, Utah, as your listeners know, is one of only two states that ban all uh, gambling now, along with Hawaii. Um, it's been that way since statehood. So kind of an, an interesting um, ad advance there, trying to make it gambling legal in Utah. All right, check that story. Robert Gerke wrote about that, uh, uh, sltrib.com. Um, Tim Fitzpatrick, what's your underplay story of the week? 
Uh, I went with Leah Larson's story on the effort to restore Bonneville salt flats, which is actually reducing the salt. Uh, basically, uh, they got a study out that uh, for years, they uh, a company has been pumping brine into the, uh, into the uh, flats to try to restore the salt, but they're pumping groundwater from underneath that's actually been working against them. And I think that's a warning that, uh, you know, as we face a lot of water shortages, you're seeing the state look more at groundwater and groundwater is not free. You, you start pulling it out of the ground and, and other things happen. So I think it's, uh, it's a warning of sorts. All right. Check that out at sltrib.com. Um, Robert Gerke, what's your underplayed story of the week? Um, I'm going to highlight one that Emily Anderson Stern did about a bill that Colin Jack, Representative Colin Jack is sponsoring that would uh, sort of narrow the definition of lewdness around a child. Um, the question that came up in the committee is like, was, would this prohibit, uh, would this make drag shows a crime? Because, you know, Jack has been uh, outspoken on this before. Uh, the bill passed the committee, but there are still those that have concerns that uh, the overzealous prosecutor could use it to, you know, crack down on drag shows and see those as lewd and, and file charge, criminal charges in the, in the case. So, uh, watch that one in the last two weeks. All right, com for that one as well. I think I'll choose um, Anastasia Huffam's story to publish just today. Uh, the headline, Everyone Was Happy with the Bears Ears Land Swap. Here's Why It Fell Apart Anyway. You can check that out at uh, com. Well, we've been talking with education reporter Carmen Nesbitt, real estate reporter Tony Semerad, renewable energy reporter Tim Fitzpatrick, and news columnist Robert Gerke. Appreciate uh, everybody. And um, thanks uh, for everyone for joining us. You've been listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Hope you join us again next time. Thanks.